Welcome to the South Fellowship Church Podcast. Here at South Fellowship, we exist to help people live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. Wherever you're listening from today, we hope you're encouraged by this week's message. Thanks so much. Didn't even. In the early service, right at the crucial moment, this went everywhere. And I've said, you know, I've probably preached in 40 years about 5,000 times, and I think I've spilled water 4,500 of those times. Um, I don't know what it is. There's something broken. Um, it is such a, a delight to be here with you on Father's Day. And uh, our brother mentioned Rooted Ministries. What, what we actually do, yes, we're all about bringing people together from all walks of life in the body of Christ. But we work specifically with pastors, Christian leaders, and their spouses because we're a, we're, we're a lonely lot. And uh, so to have a home church in between travels, to have a home church to come back to and to call that home church south has been a real blessing. And I want you to know that for my wife and myself. It's just a delight to be able to serve you this morning in this small way. So, um, sons and daughters of God, it's Father's Day. And I couldn't help but begin with this picture that became famous this week. Uh, One of our own Denver Nuggets who is going to become the father of the year just based upon that picture. I mean, that little girl became the darling, I think, of a whole community, maybe, maybe the whole earth, as they watch those videos of her. I, too, am honored to be a father. This is a picture of, um, I guess, my youngest daughter, Caroline, uh, was ju- had just been born. We had just brought her home. And there's my middle daughter, Leanne, over um, to the left, saying we're number one or something. I don't know what she's really saying, but she's excited. And then my daughter, Andrea, and the two older girls are are part of this community as well. And there's me with whatever I had on that day. I don't know what I was, maybe I was going out to play basketball or something, but um, I love my girls so very much. Love my wife so very much. She's my best friend for 47 years. And I love my daughters and their, um, their husbands and boyfriends and and those grandkids. And then, these are my girls just a couple of years ago before we moved, they came out and helped us move uh, 35 years of stuff, a lot of it their stuff that they had left at our house, as you know how that goes. And we came here to be with them um, in, in your community here from Denver. So what we kind of gather from these pictures is that loving fathers are really, really important. And if we don't have a loving dad, um, the results can often be disastrous. If you Google absent fathers, thousands of articles will come up about the consequences of broken dads trying to uh, parent kids and families. Um, Prisons are full of men and women who had either no dad or broken dads. Stalin and Hitler were beaten by their fathers. You wonder, how does somebody get where they got? And they had personal choice and responsibility, of course, but it started very young with some broken dads who took out their brokenness on those kids. And then in one of the books that we have available to you this morning, the first one that I wrote with Nav Press, um, telling stories of that neighborhood that um, our brother just talked about, um, Brian, Cannell, Melissa, Samson, who I just got a text from this morning on Father's Day, he's in federal prison right now, finishing up a 12-year sentence that he began to serve toward the end of our 
time there. He, he trusted Christ, we baptized him, then he burned down a building, and um, he just, he needed the money, and it's a long, long, long story, but he's following Christ in a federal prison today. Uh, but, but grew up with no dad, and a really, really broken mom. Sophia's story is there, June's story is there. All of them sought healing because of the beginning of their journey with broken fathers, jacked up fathers, or absent fathers. But here's the deal. No matter how loving our earthly fathers are, we all have a deep longing for another kind of father. A kind of father whose love will fill us in a place in our hearts that no earthly love, even from the best of dads, can possibly fill. And this morning, what we want to talk about for a little while is the fact that the God of Israel, the God of Jesus of Nazareth, the God of the universal church and the historic church and the God of South Church is that father that our hearts are longing for. He's called father 15 times in the Old Testament and then with progressive revelation in the New Testament, Jesus called, I'm sorry, in the New Testament, 200 times he's called father. 150 of those times, Jesus calls him his father and 25 or 30 of those times, he calls God our father. And this is so incredibly important because of this truth. In any relationship, how we view the other person profoundly impacts the relationship. Nod your head if you get what I'm saying. I mean, my wife, again, I just told you, she's my best friend, the love of my life, but she's her and I'm me. And I used to think when we first got married, well, I will conform her into my image. I mean, I guess all young uh, you know, husbands probably have some of that in them and are still struggling not to be misogynistic culture. And my wife quickly said, Buster, if that was your premise, you're barking up the wrong tree. So she, I love it now these days. I celebrate that she's not me. Don't want her to be me, she's her. But we will tangle sometimes. And the way those tanglings go depends a lot on how we're viewing each other in that moment. So I'm view, if I'm viewing her as my, my best friend of 47 years who just one more time has a very different view of something than I have, the argument goes one way. If, if I'm viewing her as somehow overnight she became my nemesis, in that moment the argument goes a very different direction. You understand what I'm saying. In any relationship, how we view the other person profoundly impacts the relationship. So it is with our relationship with God at the core of many of our spiritual struggles. I've come to believe this after living for 69 years on the planet, being a son, being a dad, and being a pastor in three very different communities of all different kinds of human beings, traveling to 14 countries, being with every kind of person that you can imagine in the world. I'm telling you that at the core of many of our spiritual struggles, stealing our joy, freedom, security, and power, is a heart, our heart, longing to know God as loving Father, but feeling him to be someone or something else. In fact, when I sit with folks, when I sit with pastors and pastor spouses and Christian leaders and then others, uh, whether it's on Zoom, when I'm here, or face-to-face when I'm elsewhere, um, and sometimes sit with people that are here in in Denver as well, um, usually I'm sitting with their pain. And so often one of the first questions I will ask them when I have an opportunity is, when you look at God, who do you see? When you look at God, who do you see? So be gut level honest with me for just a moment this morning. Be honest with yourselves. Could some of these fit what you see when you see God? 
The first one, uh, and there are so many more than this, but I boil it down to these four. Some of us see him as the CEO of the universe. A God who's all about power, and he's all about production. He's the CEO. He's got to get something out of his church. He's got to get something out of us. He's given us so much, we need to get, give back. He has to make it happen. He's the CEO. Often we can feel him when we look at him as if he's barking orders to us constantly, 24-7, nonstop. A nicer version of this would simply be to call God our spiritual life coach. Um, but still, even if he's coaching our lives, he's trying to maybe squeeze another tenth of a second out of our spiritual 40, uh, 40 time, you know, our 40-yard dash time, just, just, trying to, just trying to see if he can just get a little more production out of us because that's what coaches do. Others of us see God as maybe the cosmic professor, very addicted to his left brain. He's all about the intellect. Uh, he doesn't feel much. He's a little bit different or, or distant emotionally. Um, he's all about information, and he's always demanding of us that we study more, study harder, know more about him. The way we expect this view of God, this God to connect with us, is through us knowing more about who he is, and that's about it. And then some of us view him more as a spiritual chief of police or a harsh judge, scouring our lives for screw-ups. No matter how much we do well for him, or for society, or for our families, or for the kingdom, we think. When we mess up, he's always there to see. And like Jovert, and Les Mis, if you know that character. He, his, his life on the planet is about saying, the world is about right and wrong. If you screw up, there's a price to pay. So often that, even unconsciously, is our view of our God. And then the last one, um, we may view him as a parent, but usually that's, it's as a demanding parent. A father who doesn't really see us, he only sees little people that need to obey him. And his uh, greatest task is to get us to, to get in line. Um, I don't know how many of you saw The Sound of Music back in the day, classic movie. And, you know, uh, Julie Andrews, who was a nun at the time, ends up getting married to this guy named Von Trapp. And remember when she first gets introduced to the children, and she has that little uh, whistle. And the children march down the stairs, and they have a little routine that they march to, and they stand in line. I don't know if they salute or whatever, but I remember sitting there thinking, I know this is supposed to be cute, but this home is jacked up. <laughs> I think many times we kind of see God like that. When we look at him, he's basically saying, get with the program. There's lost people out there, you know, time's a wasting. One of the saddest things is, you know, um, being a, a believer in Jesus for 64 out of my 69 years and being in every kind of church you can imagine, many of these views of God come directly from Christianity. Not people trying to make us see God in a false way, but whatever they have to give us, they give us. Pastors and teachers and, you know, speakers and podcasters and coaches and whatnot, even, even our, our parents. Um, and, and, and basically, that, that's where these kinds of views of God come even more prolifically. They come from well-meaning moms and dads, aunts and uncles, grandparents um, in our home life growing up. So uh, in 2009, I was asking the Lord, I don't know, I was saying, Lord, what now? You know, what, what now with our community? What, what are you calling me to? And I decided he was asking me to get with men. 
And so I, I asked 13 young men if they wanted to hang out. And basically the goal was going to be, you know how a lot of us as guys are grown men, little boys in grown men's bodies. I should take a show of hands, but I think the guys would say, that ain't me. And the wives might say, yeah, that's, that's, that's my, my precious husband. Um, a lot of times guys were not aware. We've never had anybody help us be aware of that. But I had been that guy and was trying to grow myself up. So I invited 13 young men to be a part of uh, that growing process. We were going to study the scripture. We're going to ask God to, in our relationships, just heal us and, and connect our little boy selves that have been wounded with our grown man selves. And so the very first night or the second night, we got together. We looked at Ephesians chapter one, and we looked at this phrase, blessed be the God and Father, God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. And then I asked the young men, let's talk to one another about how our experience with our earthly father has created space or not for us to experience God as our father, as this text implies. Here's a couple of the responses from this book. It comes from a chapter I wrote on, on in fact, the chapter was called Abba. One young man says, my father never opened his heart to me about anything. He was emotionally shut down and distant. So it's really hard to believe there's a God who wants to connect with me as a heavenly father. Another young man said, my dad left our family when I was young and has never taken an interest in me but he's known for betting plenty of women, all the while preaching at his church each Sunday. So God is my father, wow. Another young man said, dad was a missionary. He was all about saving the lost and loved it when I helped, but he never really seemed all that interested in me. Does God really want me or just a soldier for his cause? My main memory of a dad, another guy said, is a stern look and correcting voice. I'd done it wrong again. Dad wasn't a bad guy. He just didn't know how much about grace or affection or how to say, I just love you, son. And now it's hard to believe God wants those things for me. Last quote that I gave, there were 12 out of the third, uh, 11 out of the 12 guys um, spoke and 11 out of the 12 wept. And this last brother I quote said, I never knew my dad. He left before I could know him, and now he's dead. Having a dad, earthly or heavenly, I'm not certain what that's supposed to be like, but I'd sure like to know. Well, here's the deal. Here's the good news this morning. Paul in Romans 8.15 says something completely different in terms of picture of God toward us and what we've been talking about. This is what he says, for you talking to you and me, not just the Roman church, did not receive the spirit of bondage. Let that word sink in. Sometimes our view of God it feels like bondage, man. Can't get away. Want to get away? I'm not supposed to want to get away, but I do. Leading again to fear, big word in our relationships, period, let alone with God. That's in Christ, it's no longer like that. If it ever really was but you have received the Holy Spirit of adoption by whom we cry out now, Abba, Father. And before I kind of unpack, there's like three little movements in this, these, this little verse. Before I unpack this, let me talk to you about the context just for a moment. In this context, and some of you know Romans 8, 
It's, it's wonderful because at the end of Romans 8, it says, uh, nothing can ever separate us from the love of Christ. What a, what a great conclusion to this section of this fantastic piece of literature. But up before that, it talks about all, well, here are some of the words in, in the other texts leading up. Sufferings, groanings, labor pains, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword. At one point, Paul quotes Psalm 44, which says, for your sake we have been killed all the day long. This passage is so intense about spiritual war all around this invitation to know God as Father that one commentator from the last century, uh, actually the 19th century, said it feels to him like Paul is writing a, a piece of theology for martyrs. So as we're suffering for Christ, wherever we are, whether it's third world countries or here in the States, in whatever way, suffering for the kingdom, if we're really living into the kingdom, there's going to be pushback. Jesus said it, if, we, if, he, if, he, if they hated me, they're gonna hate you if you follow the real me. And so whatever we're suffering, um, uh, he said it's like Paul is saying, this is what you need in this battle with the powers of darkness. And it's fascinating to me. Paul could have said, well, what God wants you to know is he's your commander in chief, or he's the sovereign Lord, and in the end, all shall be well. Instead, he said, what you need to know in the midst of spiritual war in this insecure world that we live in. You need to know that God is your father. And I think he says this in this context because fathers naturally protect their children. When my, when my, when my daughters were little, um, Leanne was here this morning sitting over here and I told the story about when there was a thunderstorm, she would often get in bed and... Um, with us and, and just let me or, or her mom hold her just to make her feel safe. I, it, it's one of the great joys, one of the great memories of her being a little girl is her being able to be nestled in my arms when she was afraid. That's a natural instinct for a dad. And then when she and one of my other daughters grew up and happened to get involved with some young men that called themselves Christians but um, were pretty jacked up young men. I can remember two times, I won't give you the details, but two times when I came within an slide lash of getting on an airplane and flying to wherever those guys were and having to come to Jesus with them about my daughters. That was not to disrespect their autonomy. It's just what dads do. And so I think sometimes, and this is kind of an aside before we get to the, what the meat of this text, but I think sometimes our fear and anxiety comes from viewing God in one of the ways we talked about earlier. I wonder what would happen to our fear in the midst of this broken, fearful world and the spiritual war that's all around us if we knew every day, every moment of our lives, no matter how deep the pain, we had a God who was embracing us like I embraced my little daughter Leanne during a thunderstorm and said, you don't have to be afraid, son. The enemy looks big, daughter. You don't have to be afraid because I've got you. I'm your father. Fathers take care of their children when they're in danger. In any case, this is what I'd like to say. It is into spiritual war with the powers of darkness that Paul invites us to know God as father. So here are the three movements, quickly, of this text. The first movement is this, and you can see it here. He sees us living in bondage, and in fear. And here the bondage and fear is not just about the spiritual battle we just talked about. It's about the Old Testament law. 
which if not understood properly, I mean, that law, the Torah, has God's heart. But the way law can become, and it had become this way in Judaism for so many, it can be something that, that, uh, that binds you up with shoulds and oughts and musts. The bondage of the, the demand that the law calls for, we think, for obedience. And then the fear of what happens if I fail to obey. Will God be angry? Will he be disappointed? Will he reject me? I gotta tell you, um, I can remember many times growing up and it seemed as if when I woke up, what I would see on the wall, proverbially, would be my first open-eyed glance would be at the Ten Commandments or some list of Christian rules. And immediately I would feel that rush of, I gotta, I must, I should, I ought. And it'd be a good experiment to see how many times during the day the word should comes out of our mouth, which might reflect where we're living in this bondage of I've got to. And then I immediately remember feeling, um, I was a pretty productive young man, but I remember feeling fear about what happens if I don't produce. Can you imagine what it would be like wake up in the morning and instead of seeing the Ten Commandments or some version of them to see our Abba Father sitting on our bed saying don't look at that wall just look at me and take my hand and let's walk together into another amazing day you and me father and son father and daughter into this thing called life can you imagine the freedom of that and then the next movement he sees us living in that bondage and fear. He moves toward us like the, the prodigal's father in Luke 15. He begins to move toward us as we come home from the far country of bondage and fear. We're looking to get out. We don't know what to do. Or we're sitting outside the party with all those rules all over us. We're so unhappy. Some of us are living there today. We're Christians, but so much unhappiness in our heart because there's so much bondage and so much fear. And he sees us, and instead of being disappointed, out of love, he moves toward us and calls us to be his own. The picture here is of a cosmic orphanage that he enters, and he sees us in a crowd, and he looks right at us, and he points at us, and he said, I want you to be my son. I want you. You know that feeling of, wait, are you... You looking at me? You couldn't be looking at me. If you knew who I was, he goes, no, I know everything. I want you to be my daughter, and I want you to be my daughter, and you, and you, my son, my son. I want you to come home and be my son, chosen. And if you remember the, the game when we were like maybe third, fourth, fifth grade, Red Rover, Red Rover. Raise your hand if you even know what I'm talking about. Otherwise, okay, this will land. So for those of you who don't know what corny games your grandparents and parents used to play, if you're a younger person, you'd line up in a long row, you'd hold the hand of your partner, and there'd be another long row of, of students across maybe 20 yards away. And the captain of your team would yell, Red Rover, Red Rover, let John come over, or Susan come over. And then John would take a running start, 20 yards, he would try to break the chain that we were holding on to with the next person. And if he broke it, he could take one of us back to the other side. 
And if he didn't break it, he had to stay with this team. And you can see how that would work in terms of ultimately who won and who lost. I remember as a kid, I don't know if you can connect with this, being petrified that I was not going to be chosen. And even worse, that they were going to go through all the kids and finally somebody would say, I wonder if there's anybody that we haven't thought of. Oh yeah, there's him. What's your name again? Kevin. I, I, was, I hated that game because I never thought I would be chosen. How about you? And then sometime when I got older and I found a niche or a crew, I remember thinking, if they knew who I really was, they would not choose me. Can you imagine my brothers and sisters living your life knowing that whatever happens out here with folk who can be, as you know, pretty fickle because of their own baggage much of the time, to live knowing that today the God of the universe, he not only chose me in history past, but today he chooses me all over again. And then the last little movement in this text is he calls us to be close and then he whispers to us, from now on, I want you to cry out to me. And by the way, the Greek word kratso, which it translates cry, it literally means cry out. If you have a translation that doesn't have cry or some uh, form of, 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 of emotional um, um, utterance, then you've got a bad translation in that text because it's the cry of a child. My daughter Andrew was little. I'd come home from the church. She would go to the window and cry out, Daddy's home. And then later on, when she went through some tough stuff, all she, and I'm thinking of a story in junior high that I don't have time to tell, but I remember all she needed was to know that I was there. I remember walking up to her in this particular situation, just saying, are you okay? And she looked up at me with big tears in her eyes, and I looked back down. And I said, I just want you to know I'm here. Your daddy, I know you're 14 now, but your daddy is here. She didn't need me to rescue her, but she needed to know that her dad was there, and she could cry out in her heart and I would be right there. That's what Paul says God is inviting us to do, to cry out to him in day and night, joy and sorrow, Abba, Father. And it's so crucial to notice, he doesn't just say, cry out, Father. Because in Judaism, to call God Father would still be rather formal and distant. But Abba is an Aramaic term, Aramaic was the spoken language of Second Temple Judaism, um, which would include first, the first century when Jesus lived. Abba was a term first used by Jesus in the garden and in Mark 14, before he went to the cross, and this is what F.F. F. Bruce says about that term. It's a domestic term, it's not a formal term, it's not a term for court. It's not a term for hierarchy. It's a domestic term by which a father was called in the affectionate intimacy of the family circle. If you go to Jerusalem today, into the, into the Jewish quarter especially, I've been there and I've heard it, and families are there just to do a little window shopping or whatever, and you'll hear these little Jewish sons and daughters crying out. You'll, you'll hear it echoing through the halls. Abba, Abba, Abba. This is an intimate term that Jesus uses on the night before he went to the cross. The logos of God. The preexistent second person of the Trinity. 
calls out to his God on the night before he went to the cross, Abba, in the tenderness of that intimate father-son relationship. And you know what some scholars say? They say, you know, the New Testament's written in Greek, and so the Greek word for father is pater. So everywhere, if you look at a Greek manuscript, that, that if you look like in the Sermon on the Mount, I think the word father is used like 17 times, 17 or 18 times. So you see pater, pater. You know that, Greek, that famous passage where Jesus said, um, have you taken a look at the lilies of the field or the birds in the air? Don't you have a pater, a heavenly pater that will take care of you? like he takes care of them. Are you not of not more value to your pater than they are to him? Some scholars think that when Jesus, when it was written, it was recorded in Greek, but that when it was spoken, Jesus was saying, do you not have an Abba who cares for you more than he cares for them? And, 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 and many scholars also think that when Jesus taught his disciples to pray and thus us to pray, he didn't just say, pray like this, our pater. In Aramaic, he would have said, pray like this, our Abba, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And so we're invited, don't miss this, brothers and sisters, sons and daughters of God, we're invited today to cry out in joy and sorrow, day and night. He could have said, hey, I'm the king. I want you to bow when you talk to me and call me sovereign Lord. Instead, he says, I'm inviting you to call me every time we connect. Abba, Father. A few years back, I was teaching on the coast of Oregon in a little Bible college, a little Bible school. Had a class of about 35. We were doing Reformation history. I don't know what I was going to teach that day, probably something about Martin Luther. But I did a little devotional on this text, Romans 8.15, and talking about the orphanage, I asked the students, does anybody here, did anybody here, were, were you adopted? Did you grow up in an orphanage, were you adopted? I kind of expected no one to say yes, but one young lady said yes. I said, do you want to hang later? I'll buy you a cup of coffee. So we got together, I'm gonna call her Nadia for the purpose of this story. She was raised in a Bulgarian orphanage, Eastern Europe. Um, it was, it was uh, to hear her describe it, it was an absolute cesspool. She can remember coming out with some of her friends and some grown-up people would come. She wasn't quite sure what was going on, to be honest, she told me. I, I didn't know Pastor Kevin, but I know this. A couple of them would leave and the rest of us would go back to our little cubicles. I knew that feeling of somebody got chosen and I didn't. She said, one day they came into my room, they gave me the first dress I'd ever had. It was a tattered little skirt and, and blouse or something. Um, she said it wasn't much, had some holes in it, but it was the first one she'd ever had. And then they took her to this room and said, I want you to take a shower. They said to Nadia, and she said it was literally just some pipes, some old rusty pipes with little drips of water coming out. This is the way she described this to me. So she took the shower and then she, she put on her dress and she walked out and there were two people standing there, looked look like a husband and wife, um, I think she said, you know, older people. 
And they didn't understand her and she didn't understand them, but the directors of the orphanage said, you're to go with them now. And so she got in a car with them. She'd rarely been in a car. And then they took her to the airport. She got in an airplane. You can imagine she'd never been in an airplane. And she flew all the way across the Atlantic Ocean and then she flew all the way across the United States to Oregon. And she said, these two human beings, they still couldn't communicate much. Um, they took her up into bed. They put her in these brand, she described these brand new pajamas. She'd never seen anything like that in her life. Put her in a bed like something she had never, ever even dreamed of sleeping in. And she said, here's what happened, Pastor Kevin. This man and this woman, they leaned down toward me. And the man, as he was tucking me in, said words, and I don't know how I could understand. We had pieced together what this meant, but I remember him saying, from now on, Nadia, from now on, sweetheart, you can call me daddy. And she said, from that moment on, Pastor Kevin, I knew I was home. My brothers and sisters, it's only when we begin to understand and heal to the point where we can know deeper than maybe we ever have that our God is not our CEO. He's not our spiritual life coach. He's not our great cosmic Bible professor in the sky. He's not a demanding but uncaring parent. He's our Abba. When we begin to take baby steps toward his open arms, then and only then we will know we are home. I showed this picture the last time I, I had talked here. This is, a, this is me and uh, my little baby granddaughter, Lennon. This was taken about 18 months ago. You right, might remember that her real name is, um, yeah, her name is Lennon, but when she got home, her baby brother couldn't say Lennon, so he called her Lemon. <laughs> and so even today, we'll call her Lemonade, uh, Lemoncello, I've called her. Um, I, I don't, I, I hope it's okay for her when she's 15. I hope it doesn't damage her, but um, she's just a little pumpkin, but I don't know what the wound in your life has brought you to believe God is about with you. But this I can tell you based upon the authority of the word of God. This, this is the picture of you and your Abba. I don't care if you're 112 here today. This is still how your God sees you and me. When, as we move here, we're moving toward home. And until we begin to move here, my brothers and sisters, we are living in the far country of whatever else God is to us with all the stolen joy, the stolen power, the stolen freedom of knowing this kind of love, which literally sets us free. This changes everything. And I don't have time to get into this deeply, but this impacts me so deeply because this was my story. I trusted Christ when I was five because I felt his love. 
and I wanted more. I was already a shame-based little kid in my broken family of origin, very Christian, very jacked up. And I heard the love of Jesus. I said, I got to have that. And then for the next 31 years, I got law. Not the, the call of Jesus to obedience. It's about life and freedom. But the oppressive law of fear and bondage. And because I was raised in a performance-based home, I, I'd learned that you get love at some point if you perform that law, that duty, whatever it was. So I performed it, man. High school, I was all this and all that. College, I was all this and all that. Plaques, awards, seminary, all this and all that. Six years in the ministry, I couldn't do it anymore. Not knowing God as Abba, but knowing him as all those other things with all the Bible knowledge, the Greek, the Hebrew, the Latin, everything that I had in me that was of the truth but hadn't been internalized. Some of it, not even real truth. It sucked the life out of me until one night after giving another talk, another speech, another sermon on the way home, east side of Detroit, 94 and Allard overpass, I almost committed suicide because I couldn't live like that anymore. And I don't have time to go into the rest of the story. I tell more of it in a couple of the books I've written, but God came to me in ways that only he can, in ways that he will come to you, and reminded me, you've got everything. You know all the Greek words for love, Kevin. What you don't know is that I love you. And you know that God might be everybody else's father, but you don't know that I'm your Abba, and I love you, and I'm never letting you go. It changed everything. And here's what the change looks like. Bondage to freedom. Instead of I've got to, I should, I ought, or what happens? Now, who wouldn't want to love a father who just goes like this to you all day long and touches the wound and, the, and heals the darkness? Who wouldn't want to say, Father, wherever you're going, I want to go. Whatever you're doing, I want to go too. But no longer oughts and shoulds and bondage, freedom, fear to safety. He's got his arms around us. Every, I, I no longer think of him as out there. I think of him as right here. So whatever the battle, yeah, I can get afraid until I remember, oh, my Abba is here. He fathers protect. Don't even have to be afraid of discipline anymore because good fathers will discipline their children. God will discipline us, but even his discipline comes out of a place of father love. I don't have to be afraid. It's for my good. Distance to intimacy. Fathers that are healthy are always moving toward their children. They don't live withdrawn like some of your dads did. God bless them. They're always moving toward us. God isn't out there. We begin to realize when we know he's our Abba, that he's right here near. Our relationship with him is not about left brain construct as much as it's about intimate embrace from a God who says, you're my beloved son and daughter and I'll never leave you ever. Rejected to chosen. Never again do I have to wonder, do I belong? Because we can know because God is our Abba that as I said earlier, he hasn't just chosen us, he continues to choose us. No matter what, no matter where we find ourselves in the far country, he continues to choose us because that's what fathers do. And then from shame to love, when we realize and begin to heal to the point we know he is our Abba, that voice of shame, the voices of shame that will say, you'll never be enough. Who do you think you are? Nobody really loves you. 
You try and try and try, you'll never get where you're going. We will know that our God will never talk to us like that because God is our Abba. And healthy, good fathers, even when they're trying to help us find a better pathway, never shame us there. They love us there because that's what good fathers do. So I wish we had another, um, actually three days, maybe like a retreat, to talk about healing. The, the truth is, nobody can talk somebody else into this. The wounds are too deep. So we have to engage a healing process. I've been on a healing journey myself for 30 three years since the moment I almost took my own life. It's been a healing journey. We'll never be completely healed till we're home, but I'm on a healing journey. And so one of the things I want to encourage you as we heal these old father images, we've got to be able to call them out. If one spoke to you today, that's a piece of your work right there. To say, Lord, that isn't you. The word of God says that's not you. How did that come to me and how can I begin to heal? As we're healing those old father images, my brothers and sisters, we're gonna to have to be very patient and very gentle with ourselves because this will be a process. And the enemy will fight hard because he knows no matter how many Bible verses you know or how many Christian type things you're doing, until we know that Abba is our God, then we're not free and we're not home. So he will fight hard. He knows if we get here, the world is going to get healing because it's gonna come from God's sons and daughters that instead of going out and trying to proselytize, we're just gonna go out and say, can you see him in broken me? He loves me, he loves you. He's inviting you to come home. The enemy will fight hard. Be patient and gentle with yourself on this journey. And this is hard, but you're gonna be invited to begin to explore your formative years. Because most, I've found most wounds, not all, around father image start when we're very, very, very young. And families of origin that tried hard to give us the best that they could, but many times didn't know how to love. So they gave us what they had. And so many of us have plastered those images from those caregivers, whoever they might be. It might have been a pastor, grandfather, mom, dad, aunt, uncle. We've plastered the faces of those caregivers on God it's gonna take some time. There's gonna be some invite, invitation to do some healing work there, to realize maybe piece by piece that we can do the work of tearing off the mask, the false face that the enemy has encouraged us through wound to apply to God's face and begin to be set free by seeing underneath that false face that God is our Abba Father. And then finally, I can't emphasize this enough, but truth alone, I, I've tried to do the best I could today telling the truth as I understand it from the scripture. But what we know about the brain um, and, and trauma therapists especially will tell us the deepest wounds around things like father image cannot be healed just by words. Words alone don't heal trauma. Even Bible teaching, we need it. It can do some healing work but some of what we need is the experience of the love of our Abba. 
to help push back the part of the darkness inside of us. We already know the truth. We've heard a sermon. We could listen to it 10 times. But there's pieces of us that need to feel this love from our Abba. Sometimes directly, but oftentimes given in the body of Christ from others who are on the same journey. One of the best things that I did as a pastor, especially as I continued to heal, and especially in the hood, is I would walk those streets and all kinds of pain would come out of alleys and whatnot. And they would come up and they knew I was a pastor. You think I tried to preach sermons to those young men and women? No, sir. I would stay like their parents didn't. And I'd be with and I would receive and ask questions. And then at the right time, over and over and over and over again, I'd say, can I, I do like this? And they would fall into my arms. And I could tell you, for many of those young people who might not know a word of theology about God being their Abba, they began to feel Abba moving toward them through broken me simply because of the embrace, the experience of Abba's love that is over and above and beyond and supportive of the truth about Abba's love. I can remember so many times at the end of a church service, um, people, would, people would come up and just stand there after I'd preached. And I gotta tell you, once I knew about the Father's love, I could be preaching in Leviticus. We're gonna get here. We're gonna get here because it's everywhere. Um, and they would come up and they would just stand there. And you know what I began to realize is that um, you know, you know what you want if you're a teacher or a preacher? You want people to come up and go, that really salient point you made about that Bible verse, can we discuss that more? And you just feel like, gosh, they, they really heard me and they really got it. Instead, they would just stand there. They didn't, want to, they didn't want to talk about that sermon. They wanted me to do this. As the father that they never had in behalf of a father that their hearts were longing for. So I'd like to do that with each of us this morning. I can't, so what I'm gonna do um, I'm going to ask um, a a young man to come up and be with me this morning and kind of do a role play for a moment. And I don't know enough of you. I knew a guy in the first service, so I asked him. But I've been looking around here at who would be young enough to be a son of mine. And and I'm looking over here at you, young man in the plaid shirt. Is he seeing me? Yeah, I'm looking at you. And... Obviously, you're a grown guy. You don't have to say yes. I, I, I think it will be a blessing to you. Would you mind playing my son for just a moment? Would you do that? Thank you. Yeah, come on up. Come on up. Would somebody get these chairs from us, please? That would be really nice. I love that. I've got you right here. I've got you right here. You want, these are the stairs right here. There you go. There you go. Thanks so much. And you're going to sit right here. Okay. You see that chair? There you go. Thank you so much. Thank you, Chris. And to show you how real this is and unrehearsed, I don't know your name, son. What is your name? JD. JD? Yeah. Like the initials, JD, right? Okay. So, JD, for this moment, I'm going to be your dad. Okay? And... What we're going to do is just role play a Jewish blessing prayer. 
in the, in the Hebrew community, even today, in the, in the, especially the Orthodox community, when they begin to celebrate Sabbath, um, the Sabbath meal on the Friday night before the Saturday you know, celebration uh, and day of, of, of rest, they will do a meal and they will do a blessing prayer. The father will do a blessing prayer over his sons and daughters. And often he will pray, may the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you. But often, if you read the literature, you'll know they often dads would riff, like any dad, because they had particular sons and daughters and he didn't want them to think this was cookie cutter, okay? So I'm gonna play JD's dad and JD's gonna play my son. And this is what I'd like you to contemplate during this just short role play. First of all, What would it be like for you to have received a blessing like this even once in your life from anyone in a position of, I don't know, mom, dad, coach, somebody in a position, a role over you to receive a blessing like this once, let alone every Friday night uh, in your journey as a Jewish young person? And how would this kind of blessing have created space for you to experience God as your Abba? in a deeper way. The second thing I'd, I'd like you to contemplate is what if the blessing that I'm gonna give JD is the kind of blessing that your Abba is speaking over you and me as, as his sons and daughters every moment of every day of our lives. What if it could be true? Son, my son, I can remember the day that you were born. And I can remember what a tremendous blessing I felt when the doc said, Kevin, you've got a son. I'd had three daughters. It would have been great to have a fourth. But it was a blessing to know that now I have a son and it was you, J.D. And you know what's amazing, son? Is that I loved you from the start with all of my heart. Even though you hadn't done anything to merit my love. You hadn't jumped through any hoops. I'm sure being born was a tough, tough thing, but you hadn't accomplished anything, son. And I just loved you because you're my baby boy. And I don't know this to be true, but I'm wondering if times when you were growing up, you would have success at something or let's say failure at something. And you might've wondered, does my dad still love me the same every time? Of course I would hurt if you had a bad experience, but didn't do a thing to my love son because I don't love you because you perform. Even when you did something amazing, I was happy for you, but it didn't change my love for you. I loved you just the same, in joy and sorrow, because you're my son. And I want you to know, JD, the world is not always, well, the world will often love you if, or love you because. 
but as your father, I want you to hear from me this Sabbath Eve, son, that I just love you because you are my son. And that my love will never fail you, whether you become the next president of the United States or whether, God forbid, you land, land in prison somewhere because you lost your way. All you have to do is look over your shoulder and I, your father, will be there. In fact, no matter where you go, I will crawl on broken shards of glass to be near you because you are my precious son, my beautiful son. So may the Lord bless you, J.D., May the Lord keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you. May the Lord be gracious unto you, son. And may the Lord give you of his sweet and deep and everlasting peace. I love you, son. My Father, I pray for each of your sons and daughters here today, for J.D. and myself as well, that in some small way, this moment, your Holy Spirit will use to push back some of the wound in our lives that has kept us from living freely and fully as your precious daughters and sons. Whisper our names. Whisper your love. Give us the courage to take baby steps toward home. 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 Where you're our Abba and we're your kids. Home. Through Christ. Amen. If God is working in your life through this ministry... Join us by partnering with us. You can give online at southfellowship.org give. And thanks for listening. We hope you have a great rest of your day.